Uh, Do turn in your Bibles or on your phones if you've got them. I don't think there are any sheets this week. uh, To Matthew 18. That's where we're going to be. Um, As John mentioned, uh, day job, I'm a secondary maths teacher. And it won't surprise you that sometimes people give answers that aren't quite right. Sometimes they give answers that are wrong. Sometimes they give answers that are badly wrong. Um, But every once in a while, someone will give you an answer that's so badly wrong, you just have to stop what you're doing um, and kind of start again. Like the kind of classic one of someone saying, you know, if you're teaching about fractions and for some reason you always use pizzas when it comes to fractions, and someone says, I had pizza the weekend, I cut it into more bits, so that means I got more pizza. And you think, oh no, I need to just start again. Well, in our passage this morning, Peter's going to ask a question, and Jesus is in the middle of teaching, and he actually has to stop what he's doing and give him a parable in response, um, because his question shows what he's thinking, but actually shows that he doesn't quite understand what forgiveness is. So look with me, Matthew 18, uh, verse 21. Let's deal with the question first, then we'll read through the parable. Then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Um, Jesus had just been teaching about how sin is dealt with in the church and how people are reconciled. He's just laid out the process uh, for winning a brother back. That's the kind of passage where it's one person go to them and then a group and then take it to the church and all that kind of thing. And if I was to read that passage, we would think, oh, that seems like a lot of conflict and we'd feel quite awkward if you've ever had to use um, or had that, that quoted in any meeting. But that wasn't Peter's problem with it. Peter's problem with it is, yeah, but what happens when they do apologize? What happens when they do repent? Do I, do I have to keep having them back? And this is what Jesus doesn't really understand about the forgiveness of God. You see, Jesus thinks God is really, really patient and so much more patient than anyone else, that his fuse is so much longer, which isn't actually quite right. You see, he thinks forgiveness uh, still involves keeping score and just that God is simply more gracious and gives more attempts, more times to start over, more fresh starts. So then Jesus, in response, gives this parable. And it's a bit of... I put down. Peter seems to have set off a bit of a landmine. Um, I sometimes joke with Dom, um, because Dom doesn't do this, but sometimes when ministers always use analogies where they're like the loving, benevolent father. So it's always examples with their kids where they come out, well, this is like the opposite uh, for Peter. He's not going to come out of this looking good. But it's so important because forgiveness is so essential that he really understands what it is. And although this is a jolting parable we're about to read, Jesus says it, not so that Peter will live in fear, but so that you'll know what grace and forgiveness is. So let's look with me. Matthew 18, starting at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. 
he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also will my heavenly father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Forgiving one another in bitterness is one of those things that I think it's really, really easy to understand in our heads. Um, But getting that distance from our heads to our hearts um, is in many ways the longest distance uh, in the Christian life. And so we're going to look at this in two bits. First of all, the understanding forgiveness. That's in our heads, which I hope will be fairly straightforward. And then, yeah, but what about when I don't want to forgive? Or what does it look like when the rubber hits the road? And when I have to go from what I know to to forgiving from the heart. Um, So we're going to look firstly then at the parable in three scenes before we get to applying it. So first scene we're going to look at is grace, verses 23 to 27. Uh, I'm just going to read it briefly again. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 is the biggest number in their language that has a name, a bit like how billion or trillion might be the biggest number that we have a name for, and talents is the biggest amount. This is meant to be a, a stupidly big amount. It would be more than the kingdom would have even been worth. Um, but it's just to show uh, the point of how much of a debt it is. Um, When we talk about sin and sinning against each other, we tend to talk about people. We tend to talk about rules not met rather than, we tend to talk about it on a horizontal level rather than on a vertical level between our relationship with God that we in fact owe a lot more than we think. And that's the first thing Peter's uh, not quite got right in this passage. He's actually, notice the difference here, it's between servant and king, or slave and king, um, and our debt as creation against creator, when we have not loved him with our own hearts, is so much more than we could count, imagine, or even comprehend. Um, And this really is the key to understanding The parable is understanding not just telling ourselves that we should be more forgiving and we shouldn't be as bitter and we shouldn't hold things against uh, our Christian brothers and sisters, um, but understanding the weight of our debt. And I hope you see something of the servant's approach that that sounds a bit like the prodigal son, where he comes and says, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. That's, That's not an option. There's no way he could actually have paid that back. But it is like the prodigal son who comes and says, I'll I'll work as a servant in your your house. I'll pay you back. I'll work it. That's the line he's rehearsing on his walk home. He never gets to say it. Because God's grace isn't just about letting us work our way back in, but about forgiving debt. It's not just a payment plan. It's it's writing it off. So the first scene is grace. The second scene then is no grace. So between verses 28 and 30. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, so now we're on the same level as each other, who owed 100 denarii, smaller amount, smaller uh, unit, uh, round about three, four months wages. So not a trivial amount, but a perfectly manageable amount. 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience on me, and I will pay you. He repeats exactly the same thing as the first servant had said to the king. And then he says he refused and and put him out. The contrast here is really easy to understand. When you see it, you go, well, of course he should forgive that debt. But when we actually start to apply it to our lives, it becomes um, a bit more difficult. And then the third scene in understanding it, before we look at at what it means from it to go from our head to our heart, which will be where we'll spend most of our time then, is justice in verse 31 onwards. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, reported to the master all that had taken place, and the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave all of your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, he delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Verse 3, in a way he gets what he practices, he gets justice. Um, But I wonder how many of us would have rathered verse 35 wasn't there. Or maybe it says something different, that it said, but my father is gracious and loving. And that would be true. But here Jesus wants us to identify his father with the king rather than distance. And I think the reason for that is actually maybe quite simple to understand. If you've ever had friends and loved ones begin to kind of deconstruct their faith and pull things apart, it usually starts with a verse that seems quite harsh, uh, like verse 34 and 35. But actually, we need to hear that. I mean, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, because when Jesus forgives us, he forgives us from a real fate. It's not a kind of empty threat. It's not a kind of uh, manipulative tool just to get people to follow him. But I think the real key in understanding this is That those who forgive much, love much. Um, Jesus will say that those who forgive much, love much. And so if we downgrade our own debt to God, it will make us seem, feel easier. But actually in the long run, it robs us of joy. Because that's what we celebrate, that's what we worship together, is a good God who was gracious to us, who paid all our debts, who removed all our sin. And if we make that that little bit less then it might make things easier and more comfortable in one sense, but actually it robs us of our joy in God and our worship of him. It robs us of the ability to live um, out just in awe of him. I wonder what um, the heading for this parable is. It'll probably say in your Bible something like the parable of the unforgiving servant or the unmerciful servant. Uh, I think that's really helpful here because... The king is angry at the end, not because he didn't manage the king's money, but because he didn't manage the king's mercy. This isn't the parable of the servant who squandered a fortune. This isn't the parable of the servant who messed up in a colossal way. The king is not angry because he didn't manage the king's money, but because he didn't manage the king's mercy. That actually the issue here is he's not passed on the king's mercy to others. That's the key. And see the, see the order of this, that it is as we are forgiven that we pass it on. This isn't something we have to muster up. Um, sometimes you might get this when people run marathons. I remember having a group job interview, um, which is as tense as it sounds. 
and you had to give a two-minute presentation. It was for teaching. You had to give a two-minute presentation on anything, which feels like a trap because you feel like you should give it on like teaching policy or something. Um, and one person gave, gave theirs on their marathon running and training. And it was good for, for a math teacher. I had lots of graphs of their training and their nutrition and how they built up. Um, it was an interview at Strathclyde. And one thing I hadn't considered was that the person interviewing us would be Glaswegian. And, and he just very frankly went, after the person sat down, you know, very nervous, did a good job. He just went, well, you just made us all feel terrible. Um, I think she did end up getting a place on the course. But sometimes it can feel like that. It's like someone's done this great thing, and then you go, ah, but I can't. And all that does is, is make me feel terrible that I don't live up to it. Well, the, the analogy here isn't like that. It is that we've received something and we pass it on. That it's a light shining through us. So however imperfectly it's passed on, it's not something we're having to create or produce. Um, but something we've seen and something that we pass on. So that's us kind of understanding it in our head. That's the kind of easy bit out of the way. But the distance from our heads to our hearts is massive. We don't always feel it. We don't always want it. And I thought um, it might be worth at this point saying some things that forgiveness isn't um, just to help us understand. Some of these are badly named. I struggled to remember. We'll go through them quickly. Uh, forgiveness isn't a difference in personality. Some of you, when you're angry and annoyed with someone, we all know about it very quickly. Um, and, that, and that's just how you respond to things. Others of us are stewards. I'm a steward, so like, I don't even realize I'm annoyed with someone until a year later. Um, and how we process things is different, and that's great, and that's how God's made us, but that's not forgiveness. Um, so if you look at your Christian brother and you think, well, well, they're never annoyed with people, or you see someone who's just, actually, it's just God's made us as a body in different ways. Um, so don't mistake forgiveness just for personality type, depending on how easily people um, show things. Um, it doesn't necessarily remove the consequences of sin, uh, in that sometimes there still needs to be Safeguards and things sorted and things changed. It doesn't mean that it immediately restores trust and things like that. Um, forgiveness isn't to be weaponized. If I wrong you and then the next week I come up to you and you're still annoyed by it and I say to you, well, you should forgive me because you're, you shouldn't be reacting like that. That's complete manipulation. There's no biblical example of that where it's important you see this as Christ commands, not mine. And that idea of using forgiveness as a weapon just to keep people in cycles of abuse or to use it to control you, to say, well, you can't react to that because you need to be forgiving, that actually just lets me off the hook and doesn't deal with sin. One of the things I love about where this is positioned is that the passage that comes before it um, really helps us uh, understand that this is a path. If you read the whole chapter, you won't come away from it thinking that sin's dealt with lightly. Um, towards the start of it, we have cut off your hand and gouge out your eye, and then um, in a more kind of formal corporate way, that kind of outlying of if your brother sins against you. Um, so it's not manipulation. It can often be used in that way in churches, but it's, that's not what it is. It isn't painless. Forgiving doesn't remove the effects of the sin caused. If you're going to forgive the debt, then you're going to have lost out on money. Um, and there may be psychological and emotional effects from that that carry on long after you're forgiven. Just because you feel them, it doesn't mean that you haven't uh, forgiven them. Um, it's not demanding groveling. So this is one of the ways I think we can sometimes see it uh, in society. Um, 
Now, there was a political leader. Uh, I'm trying to be accurate, but I think she's still Prime Minister. I checked this morning. I'm not too sure. At least at time of recording, she was. Um, you're listening to the repeat afterwards. Maybe not. Uh, but one of the commentators was talking about what Liz Truss would have to do to win our cabinet back to be reconciled. And the quote Andrew Marr um, gave was, this is what she would need to do. A vast, vast plate. She would need to eat a vast, vast plate of humble pie with grovel sauce to be eaten at speed. Um, <laughs> That might be what she needs to do, but that's not what Christian forgiveness is. It's not about um, you groveling and then me, well, I'm now enjoying having one over you or making sure you're still that little rank below me. I think that's what Peter's kind of implying in his question. Surely there must be some more permanent stain if I'm going to keep uh, forgiving. The last one I really struggled to name, um, but I think is perhaps one of the most common things we have in society. When you're in that place where you're just going through cycles of bitterness and you may be speaking to a counsellor and, and, and the good advice that will be given is try and not do that. Try and not open that cycle every morning um, and you just end up uh, winding and winding yourself up and um, that kind of thing. And although that's good advice, that's not the same as forgiveness. That's more to do with personally helping the person. That's a good thing, but it's not the good news of forgiveness. Um, perhaps best summed up in the quote where, uh, which was something like, the best revenge is getting yourself into the position where you no longer want revenge. Um, still sounds like there's a tinge of bitterness in that quote. Um, it's not about me fixing me on my own over here. This is about God having a new kingdom and a new people. And so something much more than that. So if that's what forgiveness isn't, um, let's have a look then at, at what it is. Uh, I found this quote really helpful um, from someone older and wiser. I'm not sure if it's going to come up, but uh, as a good definition um, of forgiveness. When we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish them well, grieve their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them, to help them. You see, this moves beyond just my own personal therapy of getting myself sorted out, but looks out and is our way of being um, Christ's body on earth, of showing something of him to other people. Um, different people describe it different ways, but I've kind of grouped it into kind of two categories of what forgiveness is. Firstly, it's as an attitude. This is the kind of thing we can have in all situations, whether or not uh, there will be reconciliation with the person, whether or not, um, even if the person isn't alive, we can have this. And as Christians, we are, should be the most prepared to be merciful, even when there's not trust or reconciliation. This is the kind of thing we see with Jesus on the cross, where he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that is as people are nailing him to the cross, um, it's still, it's still being offered. It's an attitude first in the heart. That's actually the thing the servant lacks because um, as, as he comes to take his other, sees the other servant taken by the throat, when the other servant offers to pay, it's like he doesn't want to hear it. It's like the person who's, who's having lots of road rage and then the other driver apologizes. It just kind of, they'll just keep going because they weren't, they weren't interested in an apology. They were interested in um, having an outburst of rage. Um, elsewhere Jesus will say even 
those outside the church love those who love them and hate those who hate them, but actually showing something of that attitude of grace and forgiveness, a willingness not to keep score against whoever it may be, is showing us something of what is distinctively Christian, um, of what Christ has shown us. And I think for me, the biggest test of this is whether or not it's practically possible, but if that person was to cut, who you're annoyed and bitter with was to come to you and apologize in the most perfect way for absolutely everything they had done, how would you react? Even if that circumstance is physically impossible, never going to happen, the test of the attitude is, yeah, but what would my response be? Because I think this is where the work's done in us working through and having that kind of attitude of forgiveness. Even if impossible, if they would, what would my reaction be? Or would I want them to still keep groveling more and more? And the key then to understanding this is not by me telling you you should forgive people, because I suspect if I do that, you'll go, I know, and I wish I could. Um, but the key is not fixating on the 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 brother you have by the throat as it is in this um, parable but by turning your eyes and looking to Christ is by realizing that first scene of what we've been forgiven from that will loosen our grip it's not by fixating over and I mean you're, you're good Christian people you'll, you're, you'll probably wind yourself up about not sorting it out as well so not just feeling bitter but feeling sinful about not that sentence didn't work uh, you know what I mean. You'll feel guilty because you've not done it, and then you'll feel guilty for also not doing it. Again, I don't think that sentence worked either, but we'll just move on. Um, <laughs> that, it, that it doesn't come, <clears throat> sorry, from fixating on that person, but by looking to Christ. The only way out of this rut of bitterness is to be in awe of Christ. And that's why it's such a wonderful application from this passage of the only way out is to look to Christ, be more amazed, understand more of what his forgiveness is like. Um, so we've got as attitude that which we always have and then as action. But what would it look like, or what did it look like in, in the early church and then what might this attitude lived out look like for us? There's lots of different examples uh, we could think about in the early church, but one thing that struck me um, and looking at this passage in Matthew's gospel, it's in the bit just before we read where they're talking about that kind of um, kicking people out of the church and that kind of dealing with sin and restoration. Um, Matthew records, and, and let them be like to you a Gentile and a tax collector. And in preparation, it was realizing that Matthew himself was a tax collector. Now, what that meant was he was working for the occupying forces. He was a complete traitor. He had no doubt um, defrauded many of the church, church's family members and people. And yet when he follows Jesus, they are willing to accept him. Uh, another example we might think of is Paul. And, and the, that when he was the one who held the coats so that his pals, when they were holding the rock, could get a good swing as they threw rocks at a godly man till he was dead. 
that some in the early church would have been family members. He was certainly an upstanding person they would have looked at, that some would have treated the body and grieved with the family. And yet when Paul shows that he understands the grace and forgiveness of God, they are hesitant to have him back, but in the end, they do. And sometimes, I know for some of you mentioning Paul, he can seem like, like kind of Mr. Church, and he's, he's the one who just always, always loved it and everything kind of got on well. He was its biggest backer. But he, he knew what it was to be let down by the church. He knew what it was to give himself over as a drink offering, to, to give his all to the church and to the people in these different places, and then to be bailed on. And then to be, in his moment when he needed the church to be something for him, to be let down. Um, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, at, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. You see, the key to this is not that we all have great church experiences and then forgiveness will maybe work later. But actually, we see something in his attitude of he knew what it was like to be let down. That was real. That hurt him when they deserted him, when they weren't there to support him. And yet you can still show this attitude that may it not be charged against him. At one point uh, when I was a student, I, I run my whole life by Google Keep because I can't remember anything. And usually the first couple of lines are not to-do lists, but other things I'm thinking of or need to know. And there was a period of time where for over a year, those words uh, sat at the top of my Google Keep, may it not be charged against them. Now, I'd be embarrassed to tell you how long it was, um, how long it was that I needed to hear that, or I needed to see that each day. Um, even more so to tell you the smallness of the issues that were there. But actually, sometimes it takes a long time for it to get from our head to our heart. And actually, I would have known it all but it wasn't, it wasn't getting to the heart. I could have exegeted it all, but, but I didn't quite get to that point of, of passing it on. But the only way we do is by being in awe of Jesus. And then, so what does that look like for us as Grace Church? Well, I, I thought at one point of going through all the different identities and the gospel identities and all those kind of things that we would talk about as a church, but actually it's much easier to say it affects everything. It's not like it affects this one issue over here. Um, as Grace Church, um, how we act towards each other and all these things, as we seek to be families, we seek to be close, as we seek to disciple each other, we're going to need... Uh, that grace for one another. We won't be marked by whether or not we're perfect or sin or don't wrong each other, but whether or not we are gracious to each other is what actually makes a difference in the long run. There are no perfect churches, and so what makes a difference in the long run is that we know the grace of God and show it to each other. That phrasing used right at the start of Peter's question um, or rather when Jesus says 77 times instead of seven is mentioned one other time in the Bible, that phrasing. And we might think of outrage and vengeance and that kind of social, as being a kind of social media invention where the most virtuous thing is to stay angry about stuff the longest. Um, but actually it isn't new. And in Genesis 4, someone says, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, mine will be 77fold. 
And it's as if Jesus is turning this on his head and saying, well, if the world out there wants to be extra, extra vengeful, extra angry, extra bitter, then it's his challenge to the church to be disproportionately gracious, to be so much more ready to forgive one another. Um, We'll close with this. Uh, I feel the Sunday school answer to when you see that Christian or maybe someone who isn't Christian that um, when you see them in heaven you won't freak out and be angry at them um, and you'll only feel joy towards them and I feel we, we know that as kind of a, a Sunday school idea but, but why? Why when I see the Christian who really wronged me and I think to myself well, what are they doing there? Why is it, yes, I'm a new creation, yes, there's no sin, but surely if I have a better idea of justice, I should be more and more outraged that they're there. Well, the answer lies in what you're singing together, that you're singing to a God who's worthy for you were slaughtered. And by your blood, you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. What we need to understand both here and now and then is that the reason they're there is the reason I'm there Um, because we have been forgiven by God we have been loved and shown mercy that's why we need verses like verse 34 if you look with me in the parable we need to see that horrible scene there the word jailers really means torturers because if we don't see Christ in that verse taking our punishment for us taking paying the debt we did deserve then we won't be able to worship and enjoy God together. We won't be able to love and serve one another as a church. It's in seeing that, it's in being all of Christ, we can get out of the rut of bitterness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you that you loved us that much. And... and We confess there are those who we've stayed bitter against, where we've held on to things that we shouldn't. And I pray you would show us more of your son, that we would be so in awe of Jesus that we could loosen our grip on those things and those people that we are bitter against. I pray you'd show us more and more the goodness and grace. Make us realize more and more the goodness and grace you've shown us Help us to love one another and forgive one another. And as you care for us here as Grace Church, I pray that you would help us to be people who are known, not as those who are perfect or who get it right, but as those people who have seen grace and pass it on, as those who know what mercy is and so are merciful, those who have been forgiven and so forgive. In your son's name I pray. Amen.